Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Okay, here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. I love many of the classic myths and poems of ancient Greece. My favorite, though, is the Odyssey. While on the surface it seems to be only an epic adventure, if you dig deeper, the Odyssey can give you insights on fatherhood, marriage, and surviving in a world that's in constant flux. My guest today recently published a book exploring these themes in the Odyssey, particularly the themes of fathers and sons searching for each other. His name is Daniel Mendelssohn, and he's a classicist, essayist, and book critic. And in his latest book, An Odyssey, A Father, A Son, and epic. Daniel shares the experience of having his 81-year-old father enroll as a student in the undergrad seminar he taught on the Odyssey one year, and the insights he gleaned about his relationship with his dad by looking at the father-son relationships explored in the epic poem. We begin our conversation with a big picture overview of the Odyssey and why Daniel's dad decided to take a seminar on it, and then Daniel and I discuss what we can learn about the relationship between sons and father from Odysseus' relationship with uh, both his son Telemachus and his father Laertes. We then shift to what we can learn from Odysseus and his wife Penelope on forming a strong marriage and how travel can change us and why the odyssey becomes more relevant to men when they have families of their own this is a fun podcast filled with amazing insights about one of the greatest stories ever told after you listen to it you're going to want to check out the show at aom.is slash odyssey you're also going to want to dust off your copy of the odyssey itself so you can read it with fresh eyes daniel mendelson welcome to the show Thanks for having me. So you wrote a, a, you just got a new book that's come out. It's a a book about my favorite book, The Odyssey, but it's also a memoir about you and your father. You're a classics professor, and one year you gave a a seminar, undergraduate seminar on The Odyssey, and your 80-year-old father asked to sit in on the seminar. Before we get to why your dad wanted to take your seminar, why did you decide to teach a seminar on the Odyssey? Because that's, you know, that's a seminar is where it's just sort of free flowing. There's no real set curriculum. There's reading discussion. Was it a work that you spent a lot of time researching and writing about, or did you have some deeper attachment to it? Well, it's funny because I myself, I mean, you know, as a classic scholar, my actual specialty is Greek tragedy and is not the Odyssey, but by a kind of funny concatenation of life events. I I ended up both as an undergraduate and as a graduate student studying the classics, sort of under the sway of two great scholars who were specialists in different ways in the Odyssey. So it was sort of always haunted by the Odyssey. I even actually, while I'm talking to you, I remember that 
one of the most influential high school teachers I had, a woman who was an English teacher at the high school on Long Island that I went to when I was growing up, put the Odyssey in my hands. She was actually a friend of my dad. Her husband worked with my father, and she told me, oh, if you ever read anything, you should read the Odyssey. So the Odyssey has always sort of been in my life, even though it's it was not for a long time my academic specialty. And then the reason I was teaching the seminar about the Odyssey is that I teach at Bard College. I'm not a full-time professor because I have to have time to write. And I try to think of courses that are sort of useful to the classics department. And I guess that year I had talked to the chair and they said, oh, it'd be good if you could do a sort of a seminar for first year students who were first you know, coming to college and focus on one text. And, you know, it's essentially a way to teach them how to read as college students. And so I just thought, oh, it'd be great to teach the Odyssey, because it's a text that young people love because it's got adventures and monsters and witches. And, you know, it's it's a lot of fun. I, I think it's probably more fun than the Iliad, say, in certain ways. And so I just thought, OK, I'll do a semester long seminar on the Odyssey, just reading two books per session, one session per week, a three hour, almost three hour session and just and just teach them really how to read in great detail. And so that's how I came to, to teach that course. Well, then tell us about your dad. Because your, your dad, I mean, I, I feel like I got to know your, him really well, the way you describe him. Oh, good. <laughs> um, you know, even like, you know, pronouncing the, the accent he had, coffee. That's how my, my, I mean, my in-laws are from back east. That's how they say coffee, coffee. Um, uh-huh, right. But tell us about him. And did it surprise you that he wanted to sit in on the seminar? To some extent. I mean, my father was a research scientist at an aerospace corporation, uh, Grumman Aerospace, who built the lunar module. We were a very aerospace family. It was the largest employer on Long Island in the 70s when I was growing up. And he was a he had done an undergraduate degree in math and was a, you know, is a science guy. And but he was uh largely self-taught in life. He was a voracious reader from childhood. And he had actually been a kind of Latin whiz in high school in the Bronx in the 1940s. And so it didn't totally surprise me that my dad would be interested in an Odyssey course because I knew he had this lingering interest in the classicists and in the classics. And in fact, when I announced to my parents during my first year at the University of Virginia that I wanted to be a classics major. I may have been the only Long Island boy in history to announce that he wanted to be a classicist and to be cheered on and have that announcement welcomed with open arms by his parents because they never asked me, what are you going to do with this? How are you going to make a living? Because my dad had been a Latin guy and he thought it was just great that I was studying the classics. Um, And my mom did too. So I was very lucky in that respect. But he was a I mean, on the other hand, I was a little surprised, not that he was interested in the Odyssey because he had a very interested mind and was a great reader. But the fact that he wanted to drive three hours every week up to Bard and sit in a classroom for two hours and 30 minutes with a bunch of 17 and 18 year olds in order to learn how to the Odyssey, that did surprise me at first. 
And when he brought it up, I was a little bemused, I guess it's fair to say. And I said, you know, are you sure you want to do this? It's a lot of it's a lot of driving for one thing, but also to just sit as a, as a student in a freshman seminar. And he said, yeah, actually he did. And then I thought, okay, this could be interesting. And of course it turned out to be very interesting. Right. Were you, did, were, did it fill you with a bit of trepidation, you know, to know that your dad, like, I, I mean, I could see like my parents sat on what I was doing. It would kind of make me a little nervous. Well, it was, I mean, I will say that it did affect the dynamic of the classroom. I love to teach. I'm a total ham. I love being up in front of a bunch of students. It, it, it's always been a total pleasure for me. But having my father in the classroom did pose a kind of an interesting challenge. And as you know, from reading the book, you know, we had sort of agreed beforehand <laughs> that he wasn't going to say anything. Uh, you know, I said, well, are you going to be active? Are you going to be a participant? How do you want to work this? He said, no, I'll just sit in a corner and listen, which when he said it, I believed it because that's sort of the kind of person he was. He was not a performer and he didn't like to draw attention to himself. So going into this, the seminar, I thought, okay, he's just going to sit there and the kids will stop noticing him and it will be more or less a normal class and then you know as you know the the from the very first day of class he got very engaged and was very contentious and very vocal so <laughs> that didn't quite work out the way i thought it was going to be and it was it was obviously it's a unique experience in my career as a teacher um i'm never going to have a parent in my classroom again and it was actually sort of interesting it was for many reasons, it was interesting in a comic way, first of all, because because he was my father, there was someone in the classroom who had more authority than I did as the students saw it. So I noticed as the semester wore on that more and more, if I asked a question, the students would start sort of looking over towards my father <laughs> as, if, as if he were the professor when they were saying their answers, when they were giving their answers. I thought that was very funny. And... Um, but in another way, I thought it was interesting because he, he, as you know from reading the book, he quite often challenged my interpretations of things. Not, I don't think, because he wanted to be ornery, but just because he, he was himself and had a different take on things, I guess. And it was like having the opposition leader in a, in a, in a legislature, like students who wanted to contend with the professor's interpretations had someone they could align themselves with. Because remember, these are these are first-year students. They're 17, they're 18. They tend to be intimidated quite often. But I think the fact of having a grown-up in the class who was often at loggerheads with the professor sort of emboldened them in a way that otherwise would not have been the case. And I thought that was actually kind of great. That's fantastic. And we'll talk later on a little bit about... Um the influence that your dad had on the kids that you learned afterwards. But let's talk about the other character in the book, which is the Odyssey itself. Um, hopefully all of our listeners have read it or are at least familiar with the general plot. But looking at things from a big picture level, what makes the Odyssey unique in ancient literature? And you know, how did it sort of set the, I don't know, what sort of literary devices did it introduce into Western literature that we can, we see in, you know, shows today that we're watching on AMC and we're like, well, that, that's from the Odyssey. That started there. Well, I, I'm, 
how long do you have? Um, <laughs> so, uh, so first of all, the the Odyssey lays the groundwork for a number of genres. The, the first of these is the adventure narrative, right? A hero goes literally out on a, on the sea, the open sea, and has a number of adventures before he gets home. That is established and defined by the Odyssey. It's also the first homecoming narrative, right? A, a person is separated from his family, his loved ones, and fights all these obstacles to come home. As you know, you know, there's a moment when my father and I were on a cruise that recreated the voyages of Odysseus where we were all sitting around one night over drinks and somebody asked me, do you think the Wizard of Oz in a, is an Odyssey narrative? And I said, absolutely. You know, there's no place like home. That could be the theme of the of the Odyssey. But of course, there is no place like home, but it's also nice to stop on the way and meet interesting people, uh, which is what both Dorothy Gale did and what Odysseus does. So it's the first homecoming adventure narrative. It's the first, one could almost argue, it's the first sort of science fiction narrative. A hero, you know, as James T. Kirk used to say, you know, boldly goes where no one has gone before to discover uh, new civilizations, right? So the Odyssey invents creatures, cultures, new civilizations, radically different forms of life in order for the hero to encounter them and by uh, sort of test himself against them. Uh, so in that sense, it's certainly the first instance of, I guess, what we would call fantasy literature, if not science fiction. Um, I would also say much more broadly speaking, look, the classical past has bequeathed to us these sort of two great epic monuments, the Iliad and the Odyssey, that stand as the sort of bookends uh, that contain all subsequent literature. And in, with that in mind, one could certainly say that the Odyssey is the first comedy, not in the sense that it's ha-ha funny, although there is a tremendous amount of humor in it. Odysseus is, is a great sense of humor in it. There are many moments of really charming uh, amusing humor in it, but in the sense that it is a narrative that takes a hero, puts the hero through many trials, but gives the hero a happy ending that ends with a reunion with a wife and a kind of a, a, a wedding, basically, right? And so in that sense, it's the model for all comedies, just as the Iliad is the model for all tragedies. And so those are just a few of the things uh, that come to mind. And also, obviously, uh, I left out one of the most important ones, which is it's also one of the great father-son stories, right? right. Little in yeah. boy is separated from his dad at birth. They come together when the boy is grown up, get to know each other, get to understand each other, and then have this great adventure together, this great challenge, uh, which, of course, is uh, to take control of their palace and, and their city again uh, after being uh, outcast for many years. And so it's also one of the great father-son stories, as I emphasize in the book. Well, yeah, that makes it, that, made, that made your dad sitting in on this class all the more poignant, <laughs> right? And yeah, one thing, I, I think before we got on the show, we were talking about how Odyssey is my favorite. I've read the Iliad and the Odyssey multiple times, and 
I always like go back to the Odyssey. Like I, I'm always thinking about the Odyssey. The Iliad, it's got some really cool battle scenes, right? Where Homer describes black blood coming out of people's throats and whatever. Yeah. But it leaves me cold. Like I don't feel like I'm better for it. Like I don't I don't feel like I got any life lessons from it. And I think you'd hit on you know one of the themes in the Odyssey is this idea a father. I feel like Odysseus is he's a multifaceted figure. You know, Achilles is like simple. Like he's angry. He has a very sensitive um, sense of honor, and that's it. You don't know about him as a father, a son, a dad, or any. I mean, but Odysseus, you get the full picture as a husband, a father, a leader, etc. Right. Well, I I have several responses to that. One of that one of them being that you should really take my Iliad seminar sometime. Okay. Um, All right. We need this. 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 You need a second book. But <laughs> be careful what you wish for. Um, right. No, I see what you mean. I mean, the, there's a sort of a, a joke among classicists. And in fact, I, there was a scene in my book, which I later cut, in which I re- remember having a conversation when I was an undergraduate classics major at the University of Virginia, a, a student of Jenny Strauss Clay, who's a great authority on Homer and particularly the Odyssey. And she had me and a couple of other students over for dinner one night, and we were talking about you know, we're sort of jokingly arguing about which do you like better, the Iliad or the Odyssey. And, you know, it was my first exposure to a phenomenon which you are yourself experiencing, which is that the world does tend to fall into Iliad people or Odyssey people, rarely both. They are starkly different. I think the Odyssey, look, the the Iliad is a poem of death, ultimately. Right. It is about death and why death gives life meaning and how death gives meaning to life i would say in a very tiny nutshell that is what the iliad is preoccupied with why we do what we do when we know that we are going to die um and that's certainly true of achilles whatever you think of him he knows that he's going to die he chooses to die and he chooses to die because he wants his life to be glorious the odyssey is a poem of life it is a poem of survival you know, it presents a different kind of heroism. The heroism of the Iliad is the glittering, archaic, almost medieval heroism of knights in shining armor and the the strange allure of military violence, uh, which is a deep part of civilization, whether one likes that or not. Uh, there is a thrill Uh, to these battle scenes. There is a thrill of violence, and the Iliad grapples with that. Um, The Odyssey is a poem of life. It's about survival. The hero does anything to survive. You know, it's funny, I always joke with my students that the tragedy, you never talk about food and tragedy. You know, nobody ever says, oh, I think I may have married my mother and do you want to get something to eat? Because food (laughs) reminds us of life processes, which are inherently sort of comic. But the Odyssey is filled with food, with digestion, with people's stomachs that need to be filled. You know, it's very, in a nitty gritty way, obsessed with the mechanics of survival. There are so many scenes in which, you know, Odysseus survives yet another shipwreck and is clinging like an octopus, Homer says, to the to a cliff face in order to to stay alive. He you know, all of the 
heroes in the Iliad have a certain kind of dignity because of the seriousness of the undertaking that they are engaged in. The Odyssey, you know, Odysseus, it is a, one of the salient characteristics of this wonderful character, Odysseus, that he's willing to be undignified. There is nothing too low for him in order to survive. He abases himself. He dresses up as a hobo. He beats himself with a lash in order to make a disguise convincing as a, as a bum. He he grovels. He begs. He dissimulates. He goes hungry. He gluts himself. You know, and and he has a family. He's a grown up. Look, Achilles is a young kid, basically, right? Right. But Odysseus is a grown-up. He has responsibilities. He has a family. He has a child that he's desperate to get back to. And I think for that reason, there are ways in which the Odyssey can speak to one that are just different from the ways that the Iliad can speak to one. And it really depends on who you are. I have found as I get older uh, that the Odyssey speaks to me even more than it used to, because it is a poem about adulthood, about about the realities of life and grappling with them. And one of those realities is time and age. You know, Odysseus comes back after 20 years. He's a changed person. His wife is a changed person. His son is a changed person. And a lot of the poem is how they deal with that. So it feels very vivid and present and modern in a way. Yeah. I think you're honest. Like, I remember enjoying reading the Iliad when I was younger. Now that I've, I've got kids, I look to Odysseus, right? Because I can relate to him. Yes. It's a great poem about family. I never think of that before when I read it as a graduate student. But now I think it is a poem that is obsessed with family and how do you know your own family, which of course is a subject I'm interested in for other reasons. Right. Well, speaking of how do you, do you know your own family, like what a lot of people don't realize or they forget the Odyssey, it's a, you know, it's the, the titular character, Odysseus. He doesn't even make an appearance in the story until like four or five books in. And it's all about his son, Telemachus, who's now a young man trying to find out about his dad. What do you think is going on there? Like, why did, why was Telemachus, why did Telemachus go on this journey to find out all, you know, to talk to his dad's old war buddies to find out about his dad? Well, there are a number of reasons why the poem begins not with Odysseus, but with Telemachus, the son. And I think partly it's to introduce this very overpowering theme in the, in the poem about fathers and sons. Um, but all, it's, a, it's a very clever narrative device because we're interested in the Odyssey, in, in Odysseus rather, right? We're interested in Odysseus and yet the author holds him back for four whole books. When you get a lot about the son, who is this character we don't know anything about, it, so it creates a certain kind of suspense. You know, everyone's wondering at the beginning of the Odyssey, where is Odysseus? Is he alive or dead? If he's alive, how do we get him home? If he's dead, what's going to happen in Ithaca? Because the poem opens with this sort of crisis on Ithaca. The king has been away for 20 years. No one knows if he's coming home, if his wife is a widow, if she should remarry, his son is now grown up, should he become the king? Can he become the king? Does he have what takes to become the king? So 
The poem very cannily begins with the absence of Odysseus, as it were, in order to make us, the audience, feel the absence of this great hero and to see what it's like when a great hero isn't around to take care of business. But most of all, I think it it begins this way to focus our attention on a theme which is sons and fathers and specifically sons looking for fathers. Um, and as I underscore in the book, the structure of the Odyssey itself underscores the importance of fathers and sons by having the beginning of the poem being about Telemachus, Odysseus's son, searching for his father. And the end of the poem, the last thing that happens to the poem is Odysseus now returned home at last, looking for his now elderly father and seeking him out and having a reunion with him. So so that structure sort of emphasizes how important this father-son uh, material is in the poem. But at the beginning of the poem, there's a plot reason as well for, for Telemachus to go out searching for information about Odysseus, which is that there's a crisis. He has now reached the age of manhood. We want to know if he can become the king. Poor Penelope has been fending off the suitors for years. We need to know if she should marry one of them or still hold off and wait for him. So the question of whether Odysseus is alive or dead is very pressing as the poem begins. And that's why Telemachus, on the advice of Athena, uh, disguised as a family friend, uh, goes off to talk to some of Odysseus' old war buddies to find out if indeed any information can be gotten about him. Right. But I, I think it was interesting, you you went on your own, like those first four books, I think they're called the Telemachy, oftentimes, because they're just about Telemachus. Yes. Talking the yeah. telemachy, well, you right. went on your own telemachy in the process of writing the book. You wouldn't talk to your dad's old colleagues and friends. I mean, what were you hoping to find out by going on your telemachy? Well, yes. I mean, I, I, you know, my, my personal narrative in the book is designed to kind of mimic the, the structure to some extent of the Odyssey itself and which I, you know, go to some lengths to explain so that people will get the, the parallels and I end I end my book by doing what Telemachy what Telemachus does, uh, which is to seek out some of my father's old friend because you know in many ways this book is a biography of my father. I mean it is about how he took my Odyssey class and how we went on this Odyssey cruise, but it it's it tries to amount to a kind of a an account of his life and who he was. And I got to a certain point when I realized that. I, to get some crucial information about who he was before I knew him, you know, before I was born, I needed to talk to some old friends, just as Telemachus did at the beginning of the Odyssey. And so I sought out uh, my uncle, my father's older brother, who's actually still alive. He's now 97. Um, and my father's oldest friend, uh, who knew him as a young man when he first started working, uh, in order to flesh out my own understanding of what my father had been like when he was young. And, you know, I go to great lengths in, in my book explaining the significance of two visits that Telemachus makes in the beginning of the Odyssey, first to the elderly King Nestor, uh, who was a war uh, comrade of Odysseus's, um, and 
might describe the encounter between this this son of Odysseus and his father's elderly friend. And then in book four of the Odyssey, Odysseus goes to meet uh, Menelaus, another hero of the Trojan War, who's married to Helen of Troy. And in the course of a great feast, Telemachus learns a lot about Odysseus and a lot about life, actually. And so I, I in my book, you know, I'm very self-consciously, obviously, uh, modeling my visit to my elderly uncle and then uh, to my godfather, my father's closest friend and his wife in the course of a very lavish dinner. And of course, I'm I'm invoking these parallels between my trips and the trips you read about in the Odyssey. And it's just one way that I'm using of trying to underscore the way that, you know, these ancient works always somehow feel very present and real. You know, the kinds of experiences that they describe are kinds of experiences in many cases that we have. And so, yes, there is a there is a point in my book where I am very self-consciously being Telemachus, going on a fact-finding mission. But I think all, like, you know, I think that, that theme of sons searching for fathers, for some reason, I don't know why it is, like, that's like a drive in a lot of men. And I know I've gotten to the age where, yeah, you have that realization, like, I don't really know my dad, right? Like, yeah. he he lived, you know, 30 years before I came into existence. There's a whole part of him I have no right. clue about. And like you said, I mean, it's almost like he's in, they're aliens, right? And yes. And do you think you can ever really know, like, this going back to that theme that you said that's part of the Odyssey, can you really know your family? Yeah, well, I think that, well, let me start by saying that, you know, I was saying before that I think the Odyssey is, is in many ways, a, 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 an epic about families. And one of the phenomena that the Odyssey seems to understand by spending so much time building up the character of the young son, which can be frustrating, you know, in my experience to students who want to get right to Odysseus. But I think Homer knows what he's doing because he creates this wonderful character of Odysseus' son precisely in order to emphasize a theme that's very important, which is how well can a child know its own parents? You know, and one of the things I now think the Odyssey is about is, is it's going to sound funny, is it's about how little children understand their parents' marriages, you know. And so to bring it back to your point, I think that it's only when you are an adult yourself, or in the case of Telemachus, a young adult, but certainly when you're in your 30s, when you get to be the age your father was, when your father had a family, that you start asking certain questions that you were just literally not capable of asking earlier because you weren't in a position to. But when you get to a point in your life when you yourself have children, when you start having to make the decisions that a father has to make, you start thinking about your father in a different way. I'm, I'm sure it's true, uh, you know, for for daughters and mothers, right? You get to be in the same life zone that they were in. And then you start to wonder, because you have to make decisions, you have to make life choices. And then you're in a better position both to appreciate the choices that they made or to question them. But I just don't think it occurs to you until you get to a certain point in life to think about your parents in this way because you just don't have the equipment to do it. I think it's very natural 
for men, you know, to get to a certain age of early adulthood in your 30s, say, and you just start thinking about your father in a different way. And you sort of you sort of start to wonder, well, why did they do why did he do what he did instead of something else? And, you know, I I certainly had that experience with my father. I was not close to my father until I was in my late 20s. Um, I was always a little intimidated by him. And, you know, he was a kind of imposing figure and being both by temperament and also because he was an American man of a certain era, being not inclined to be a big sharer emotionally, I was sort of mystified by him for a lot of my life until I was in my 20s. And then, you know, later in my own life, I started to think when I had children myself, of course, I thought a lot about my father. And I think it happens to a lot of us. And then you think, why did he do what he did? Why did he make those choices? You know, it just becomes more interesting and more present and less hypothetical than it than those questions were when you were much younger. And, and speaking of trying to know your dad, searching for, for father, son searching for fathers, I thought it was interesting. Throughout the book, you, you describe your dad, I wouldn't say curmudgeon, but he's like set in his ways, right? And he's got, like you said, he's from an yeah. era in America where it's like, you know, you're stoic, you're gritty, you don't show weakness, etc. And then you take him on this cruise, and it seems like he opens up and he softens. Yes. And like he's charming, right? Like he he croons these pop standards for <laughs> for this for the martini glass. Yeah, it's like a completely different person. What do you what do you think was going on yeah. here? And did you know that part of your dad before the cruise? Well, the, I mean that sort of transformation, so to speak. You know, I knew that my father could be that way. I think he didn't get to be that way a lot when we were growing up because he was just raising us. One of the things that I'm interested in in the odyssey is this ongoing theme of identity which is also one of the fundamental themes of the odyssey one of the most interesting things about odysseus as a character is how multiplex his identity is he seems to be a different man with different people he's ferocious as a leader he's violent with his enemies he's seductive with attractive young women. He's charming when he wants to be. Uh, he's obstreperous when he wants to be. So the Odyssey is very interested in this question of, you know, what is identity? What does it mean to be a man? Do you Can you be many things at once? Does being a man mean you're one thing? You know, Achilles, to go back to your earliest comment, is sort of a one thing kind of a guy. And one of the th reasons we love Odysseus as a character is that he's so complicated. And I, I mentioned this because it dawned on me when we were on the cruise and I, I got to see at great length a side of my father that he did not often let out. You know, this charming, affable, relaxed old gentleman whom people just naturally loved, you know, which was not the dad I was necessarily uh, familiar with. And it raised in my mind while this was happening, the relevance of the Odyssey and its interest in identity. You know, I, I realized that my father was like Odysseus. He had many sides, some of which I never got to see that often. You know, I remember I traveled a lot with my father in his 
later years. He had always been interested in traveling, and uh, my mom is, doesn't really enjoy traveling. And so, you know, being a, a husband of his era, he never went anywhere because he wouldn't dream of doing anything without my mother. So he stayed home. And then, in the, I would say, I don't know, in the mid 2000s, when my father was in his mid 70s, I just started taking him everywhere with me when I had a book tour abroad or a literary festival in Jerusalem or, you know, whatever, I would just take him. We went to South Africa. We went to London. We went to Paris. We, and it was great. He was like a kid. He really was just so happy to be traveling. And I still remember, you know, but in real life, he was kind of gruff and, and he hated clothes. He hated dressing up. He hated fancy restaurants, you know, and, and I still remember a, a friend of mine in Paris had a party, a, a very elegant lady, and it was a lot of publishing, French publishing people. And people kept coming up to me and saying, oh, your father is so charming. And I remember thinking, who are they talking about? You know, So it brought home to me a, a, a sort of a truth that the Odyssey understands, which is that identity is not a constant, uh, or at least it is much more complicated than we think it is, and that we can be different people depending on the context that we're in. I would never in a million years when I was growing up have described my father as charming and sophisticated. You know, it's just not in my vocabulary. And yet people thought that of him. So it's also, look, it's also a very interesting phenomenon. And this is not just about fathers and sons. It's about children and parents, that we see our parents as our parents all the time and can sometimes forget that other people look at them with different eyes and that they have identities that we don't even dream of because we never have that relationship with them. And that was one of the great, really strong insights I had from from doing this with my dad. Yeah. And I also think it shows that going on adventures allows you to explore identities you didn't think you had. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, people say this about travel, right? You know, travel, it's such a cliche. We don't even pause to think anymore of why it's true that travel expands you. You know, that's why you do your junior year abroad or whatever. And the Odyssey is very hip to that, right? The Odyssey understands that the you who trap, you know, the you that you were before you went on the trip is a different person from the you who returns from the trip. And it's something we've all experienced, you know, when we go away for a long time for the first time, I don't care whether it's summer camp or Mongolia, you know, that's why we do this. It, 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 it creates a new self and that's why it's so exciting. And that's also something uh, the Odyssey has a very deep understanding of. Yeah, but we change when we travel. But as you said, there's like one of the themes of the Odyssey is recognition, agnorasis. I think that agnorasis is how you pronounce Anagnorous. it. Agnorasis. Agnorasis. Yeah, I'm I'm saying that how we say it out here in Oklahoma. Agnorasis. <laughs> but when he gets home, Odysseus gets home. Um, there's these recognition scenes. His well, his son recognizes him without ever seeing him before, really, or not remembering him. But the the, the recognition between him and his wife, because you said Odysseus is sort of like this. It's called a family. The importance of family and. Odysseus and Penelope have this really strong marriage, and Odysseus, as you said, he's you know can be seductive, and in fact, he was on this island with Circe for seven years. With she was a goddess, 
beautiful, young, forever young, sex all the time, and he was being held captive there. But Odysseus, like the story starts when we inter- when he's introduced to us, like he's sitting on this island with this goddess sobbing, wanting to get back to his mortal wife, who's probably twenty. I mean, she's twenty years older now at this point. What what's going on there? Well, I think you know. I've been talking so much about the father-son stuff, but, you know, we cannot forget that in a way, and I should have mentioned this when I was cataloging the various ways in which the Odyssey is sort of the primal text for many kinds of narratives, it's also a great love story, as hokey as that sounds. I mean, here is this guy. He's a great hero. He's one of the great heroes of the Trojan War. He's a king. He's a royal person. He's an adventurer. He's a, you know, he's a very sexy guy. (laughs) And, and yet there is only one woman for him, you know, and he has all these women. He, he spends seven years with Calypso. He spends a year with Circe. He, women are throwing themselves at him. This darling young princess, Nausicaa, whom he meets when he makes a pit stop at yet another island has clearly has a crush on him and he sort of has a crush on her as well, I think. But whatever these dalliances may be, it's very clear that there is only one person who satisfies him. And one of the great things about the Odyssey is it understands something that we can sometimes forget, you know, every time I go to the gym and I see people frenziedly working on their bodies all the time, you know, and I think, man, I wish these people would read the Odyssey because it reminds you that ultimately the sexiest thing about people is their minds, their personalities, you know, and it's, it's interesting what you brought up before that, you know, what you were pointing out that Calypso is a goddess. She will never grow old. She will always be fabulously beautiful. She is the, you know, what all these people going to the gym want to be like. And yet he doesn't want her. He wants, so she wants Penelope. And even though, as Calypso reminds him, Penelope is now 20 years older, she's getting gray, she's got wrinkles, all of that, but it doesn't bother him because she is the one who satisfied and satisfies him. And the reason that she satisfies him is because he likes her mind. And your mind does not get old in the same way that your body does, right? And the recognition scene between Odysseus and Penelope at the end of the Odyssey, which is one of the great scenes in world literature, I mean, every time you read it, it's just totally overwhelming, you know, is so satisfying because they don't recognize each other physically, right? Remember, he's, he's been taken on the appearance of a beggar, a hobo, a bum, in order to infiltrate in secret his palace. And so it's not about a physical recognition, because of course, which I think is a motif in the poem that suggests that Homer understood something very real about life. The thing that connects us to people, if it's a profound relationship, is not the physical stuff, or not only the physical stuff, because after 20 years, you know what, you do look like a different person. But what connects them and the thing that is recognizable in each of these characters, Penelope and Odysseus, to the other is the mind, right? Penelope, Odysseus ultimately proves who he is to Penelope because of something he knows, not because of the way he looks. And that is so great because that is true. 
you know, what binds us to each other is what's in our head, not the size of our thighs or our pectoral muscles. Um, and so I just think that it understands that so brilliantly and it's so satisfying at the end. Um, and so it's a great love story, ultimately. You know, he finally gets back to his wife. And of course, one of the most charming touches in the poem is that the gods themselves sort of recognize, you know, the importance of this reunion because they delay the dawn so that Odysseus and Penelope can have that much more time in bed together after all those years, which I just think is one of the greatest things, but one of the great endings to one of the greatest love stories of all time. Right. I think it was interesting. One of your students pointed out that, yeah, they, they have the sort of like this mar remarriage, right? And they, they spend all the night not having sex, but they're just talking. Yeah, right. That, like they they had, of course, they they had sex. They do, but love. then they just spent the night talking, which reemphasizes that point that it's not the physicality that yes. makes a strong religion. It's that those that connection, that shared story yes. that you you have with your loved the one. The narrative, the talk, the pillow talk. It's not the sex. It's the pillow talk that makes them the great couple that they are. Right. Yeah, and, and how the, the recognition scene happened. I think it goes back. Like you you talk about this in your book that. You know, relationship. There's all these like inside jokes or things that only you and your your spouse yeah. know about or yes. your partner know about, and that's what makes that relationship right. And it's like something that your kids will yeah. never know about, your friends will never know about, but it's just between you two, and that's what creates those those little signs that create that relationship, that strong relationship. Right. I mean, I always tell my students, think of the thrill that you experience when you're able to guess a friend's password to some website because you know them so well, right, that you know it's going to be a combination of their dog's name and their sister's birthday or whatever. You know, that's what it means to really know someone is to be intimate with their mind. And it's always satisfying. So what did your dad think of the seminar? when he was done with it? Do you think he was changed by the text or do you kind of like stick with what he thought about life? Well, ultimately, I mean, we did talk about this and some of it is in the book. You know, I think he appreciated it very much. And I think one of the things he appreciated about it, you know, he himself had a, he was a research scientist, but he did have a kind of late life career after he retired from Grumman as a computer science professor. And I think he quite liked teaching actually. And he liked students. And I think one of the transformative things about him was interacting with the students. I think he had a lot of respect for them, how independent minded they were, often how hard they resisted my own interpretations in favor of their own, which I think really impressed him. Uh, you know, because a lot of students, especially freshmen, are intimidated by their professors. Uh, but these were very feisty kids. And my father, <clears throat> excuse me, these were very feisty kids and my father really appreciated that. Um, I think he was fascinated to see me in my professional life, which he had never done. I mean, obviously I'm a writer, he reads, he read everything I ever published, but you know, he knew I was a teacher, but I think it was sort of very satisfying for him to sort of see me in action. Um, I do think he, even though he never really came to love Odysseus as a hero, I do think he he got a lot out of our discussions of the poem and came, came to have, let's say, a grudging appreciation of the Odyssey. It was very interesting to me because 
after the seminar was over, my father read the Iliad for the first time since he was in high school in the 1940s. And <clears throat> which I think he told me he had only read in excerpts in high school English or something. But after the Odyssey seminar, where, you know, we, we also talked a lot about Homer and Homeric technique. And, you know, so my father should, could sort of come to the Iliad with more equipment than he would otherwise have been able to bring to it. And he called me up and he said, now this poem I love. And I think he just responded, you know, it goes back to what we were saying before about being an Odyssey person or an Iliad person. I think my father's consciousness was formed by two great events in history. One of them was the Great Depression, which he grew up in the middle of and, you know, did, did not have an easy childhood. Uh, he had a fairly hard scrabble childhood. And the, the other one being World War II which really formed him, I think, as a, as a person. And so in a certain sense, I think the Iliad with its, with its stark choices and its obsession with the way that war forces moral choices on people and its descriptions of war and its heroics um, just made more sense to him, ultimately. I really think that. And so, but I was so happy he read it because the reason he read it was because he took the Odyssey seminar. And I think, <clears throat> you know, ultimately the Iliad just made more sense to him. Um, and so that was something that came out of this experience as well. And I'm very glad he got that. He, he really responded to it. It just sat with him more naturally. Um, and I was very happy he had that experience. And did your relationship change between you and your father after reading the Odyssey together? You know, the story about sons and fathers reuniting? Well, I mean, I no, I was close to my father before we did this. I mean, we, we had not been close when I, until I was almost 30. Um, and then things shifted for various reasons that I describe in the book. Um, and so we were already close, but of course, naturally, just because we were traveling together, having these experiences together, because we did the Odyssey seminar together, uh, I would say I, it's not that I became closer to him because I was already close, but I knew more about him, much more about him than I otherwise would have known, partly through his responses to the text. You know, I mean, as I say in the book, I'm, it's a bit of a spoiler, but not really that important. I, it, came, it occurred to me at a certain point that one of the reasons he really resisted the charm of Odysseus as a character was that Odysseus reminded my father of his father-in-law, my mother's father, who was a famous, you know, bullshitter and raconteur and fabulous and trickster and, you know, and I, they didn't get along that well. And it just occurred to me halfway through the course that my father really was not particularly interested in succumbing to the charms of Odysseus because Odysseus reminded him of my grandfather with whom he was often at loggerheads. Um, so, you know, things like that. I just had sort of moments of insight into things about my father through his reactions to the text 
as he would express them in class discussion. And that experience was really unmatchable. You know, nothing would have given me those insights except the experience that we had, which was thinking about the Odyssey together. So the Odyssey really was a vehicle for, I would say, a really enhanced understanding for me of who my father was. Well, Daniel, there's a lot more we can talk about, but we're going to let people go get the book so we don't spoil any more of it because the ending is fantastic. Where can people go to find more information about the book and your work? Well, they can start with my website, danielmendelson.com, where I have links to this book and my other books. Um, And I hope that there will be many more places where readers can find out about it as the reviews come out. That's what I'm hoping for. Awesome. Well, Daniel Mendelson, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been totally fun for me. Thank you. Great questions. I really enjoyed the conversation. My guest today was Daniel Mendelson. He's the author of a book, An Odyssey, A Father, A Son, and an Epic. It launches September 12th, but it's available for pre-order now at Amazon.com. So if you go there today, pre-order it. It's going to ship to your door and be at your house September 12th. Go do it. If you love The Odyssey, you're going to love this book. A lot of great insights about the story. I'm probably going to read this again just to get those insights and chew on them some more. So go check it out in Odyssey. You can also find out more information about his work at danielmendelson.com. Check out our show notes at aom.is slash odyssey, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the show, I've gotten something out of it. I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.